It's good to see everyone who's back this afternoon. It's very good to see fresh faces, and I know a short span after lunch makes it easy to get tired, so I'll do my best to keep this upbeat and interesting as we go along. As you can see on the screen here, we're going to take our text from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. You know, as we consider this concept of standing fast in the Lord, this stand fast comes from a Greek word, literally means to be stationary. In a figurative sense, Strong says it means it's to persevere. You know, there are some times in life that we just have to persevere. There are some times in life that we just have to commit ourselves that we're going to be stationary. You know, there are points in life that it's real easy to be stationary. There are certain things we go through that we don't want to leave that situation. We just wish it could last forever. And there's other times we would love, we can't wait till we get through it. That's what this whole idea of standing fast, the imagery it brings forth, is that we are going to persevere through it. We're going to be stationary despite what we're getting dealt. Now, as you notice in the first of the verse, Philippians 4 and 1, it says, therefore. Obviously, when a word therefore is used, he's clearly summarizing everything he's already said. So what has he told them to the point that he says, based on this, you need to be stationary. Based on this, you need to persevere. You know, if we go back into the beginning of the letter, and I didn't talk about it this morning, I'll say it briefly now. You know, the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. These were letters in many cases that were written. There were prophecies that were written that were just full books. Like you would get a book without just some, a letter you would get. No chapters, no verses. As people have translated it into English and into other languages and given us other versions of that, it has been divided into chapters and verses, so it makes it easier for us to navigate and find and reference so people can follow us. So as I go back and say it's important we consider Philippians 1, it's because this has just been a letter from Paul to the church at Philippi. In the first part of the letter that we have is chapter, chapter 1, Paul describes how persecution has actually furthered the gospel message. And if you want to understand what he said about that, you can go back and read it. But ultimately, he encouraged them by saying, look, there's persecution, but it's actually helping the gospel spread. So don't get discouraged at persecution. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he basically wants the Christians there and us as we read it to live in the same kind of confidence and hope. As he faced the persecution he faced, as he dealt with what he dealt with, he says, look, if I live, it's going to be for Christ. If I die, yea me. It's my gain. That is in chapter 1. When you get to chapter 2, he basically explains to them that if they were going to be unified as a congregation, if they were going to be unified as a people, it was only going to happen through humility. Unity does not happen when we began to boast and puff ourselves up. Chapter 2 talks about this, and he basically emphasized the fact that Jesus was humbled, and then he was exalted. Even Jesus, in what we talked about this morning, you know, as I was afterwards and sitting at lunch, and you get today dreaming or getting off on yourself, I thought, oh, I didn't say that. You know, Hebrews talks about Jesus, he learned... 
the word Frankie was going to shout it out this morning when I couldn't think of noblemen. Uh, but through the things he suffered, he learned obedience. You know, the fact is, if the Son of God had to have suffering to learn obedience and how to humble himself before the will of God, we know from his prayer in the garden, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. How do we begin to commit ourselves and become one with the mind of God? It's by being willing to follow God's will, even when it contradicts what we would like for the circumstance. The very perfect, sinless Son of God for that circumstance wanted to live and wanted that cup to pass from Him. And yet, He was one with the mind of God. He was unified with the Father and the Spirit. How? Because He could take that self-will as a human for the moment and set it aside for God's perfect will that He knew was right. You see, sometimes as humans, we have to be humble before there can be any exaltation. That happened with Christ. We also learn in Philippians chapter 2 to hold out the word of life. Extend it. The gospel, the word of God are the words of life. We need to hold them out. He tells them and explains to them in Philippi, they need to rejoice without complaining and disputing. They had issues with complaining. They had issues with arguing amongst themselves. And he says, you need to rejoice in God without that. He says they need the faithful adept. He said the faithful evangelist Timothy and the brother Epaphroditus would be good for them. There were people he was sending that he wanted them to acknowledge and work with. And he says these brethren will be good for you. That's what he's talked about in Philippians chapters 1 and chapter 2. I want to slow down in chapter 3. Finally. Now remember what we're getting to. He says, therefore, my beloved, stand fast in the Lord. What's he going to get to? He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Now as I consider what we would study this afternoon, as I considered the best message, and I don't know if it's the best one, but it's the one I finally chose on and I know the Lord will bless he says, what I need you to do is rejoice in the Lord, and I'm going to tell you some things, and it's no problem for me to do this. But he says, I'm telling you the same things. I'm writing you the same things, and it's no problem for me, but it's safest for you. I don't doubt for a second that what we're going to reemphasize this afternoon, you've already heard, and you're already established in it. But even if that's the case, it's still for your safety. How do I know that? Because it was for the church in Philippi. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. If you read from the King James, it's the concision. And we'll get talking about that in just the next verse. He says what you have to know, remember all the context that we've already talked about, the persecution he suffered. He says they do it really to destroy the church, but it's really helping further the gospel. All these things you're growing in, he says be careful for dogs, beware of dogs. When I was a kid in our neighborhood, there was a house down at the end of the street that had a sign on it, beware of dog. And so I, every time I see this verse, I think of that situation. And of all dogs, their dog's name was Happy. Turns out there was a reason that sign was there. One day, Happy was out in the neighborhood. And 
I kind of had the same. I was a little bit first one to stand out, first one to speak up. Kids were all scared of happy because it had a beware of dog sign. And so I said, well, I'll take happy home. Everybody's scared. Nobody wanted to play. I went over to happy. Happy was pretty good until I grabbed happy's collar to go home. And happy got a hold of my shoulder. Happy hung on for a while. Beware of dogs. Spiritually speaking, the imagery he's saying here is when the church is dealing with something that's going on and you need to stand fast, you're going to have to watch out for the ones that you might think are happy but aren't, for the dangerous ones. He says, beware of dogs, and he gets more specific, beware of evil workers. Those who will not turn in faithful obedience. We talked about the difference this morning. Faithful obedience is obedience that is, it's true. That's why we got to do it. I mean, why would I do anything else? It's right. It's a core value. It's not something you just do because it's, well, we're at grandma's, so we got to do this. I'll do it. It's, no, I'm going to do this because it's the way, it's the right way to live. As opposed to evil workers, beware of the mutilation. This mutilation he's referring to is circumcision. The concision. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else he thinks me have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now before I get there, in case you don't know, circumcision was an act of the old law that was a very physical act. And there were some people in the early church trying to still bind it upon Christians, even though it was a Jewish requirement. He says, be careful of those people that are trying to bind the old law in a way that the new has relieved you from. Now, it's not to say there aren't things that were in the old law that Christ didn't carry into the new. And so sometimes we get to where we teach and try to understand it as a result. But they were taking something out of the old law and trying to put it in the new covenant as though it belonged there when, men, when God had released men from it. And he says, be careful of those people. Don't have any confidence in the flesh. He says, if we were going to have confidence in the flesh, if anybody thinks they have confidence, he says, I've got more. I mean, if it's all about what we've done with our bodies, he says, for instance, I was circumcised the eighth day. What day were you circumcised? Even if you were. Now, in this room, if people were, there's a good chance it was within the first two days. Not many wait till the eighth. Even in that day of time. Apparently, that wasn't even always the case. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. My bloodline, Israel. I'm not a proselyte. You know, we talked about this morning, the Ethiopian nobleman. He might have been converted, but he wasn't a, really a flesh and blood. He says, I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's the significance of that? Even when, the, when Israel divided and there were the northern and southern kingdoms, Benjamin stayed bound and united with Judah. Small tribe, but stayed bound. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. Now, what will we say for us today? Concerning the law, Harvard, Yale, Oxford. That's what that meant to them, for them to be a Pharisee. Legally speaking, he says, I'm at the pinnacle. You're not going to have anything that you're going to beat that with. Concerning zeal, he said, I persecuted the church. If the Jews want to question my zeal, look, y'all may, may have sit around in your small groups and in your dinner parties talking about them Christians. He says, I went after them. 
My zeal cannot be questioned. My fire, that word zeal, literally comes from a word which means heat. That cannot be questioned. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, is he saying he was perfect? I don't think so, but he's saying you cannot find anything to lay a charge against me and let it hold. Whatever he had that was sin in his life, either nobody else knew about it and he knew it, or it had to do with other things besides what they could find in the law. He says, if you want to have confidence in the flesh, he says, I, I can brag more than you can brag. Now, is that also he can make himself out to be something? Nope, because he follows that with. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. All that means nothing. Being a Pharisee, nothing. That I was circumcised the eighth day, really, it means nothing. Why? He says, because everything there is counted as lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Think about that statement. Knowledge. He says, I would lose everything just to have the knowledge I have of Jesus Christ my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So I'd lose everything for Christ. I gotta ask myself, would I literally be willing to lose everything for Christ? Would you? I mean, that's a lot. Think about it. Your house, your, your everything you have, all your family? Would you lose everything for Christ? You know, the interesting thing is, until I get to the point that I would lose even my family for Christ, I'll never be to my family what I can be if I put Christ first. I will love Rachel better. I will express that love, and I will be a better husband if I would be willing to lose her for Christ. Now, the fact is, when I read the Word of God and I see that as such in Christ, that I need to be willing to give my life for her, that I need to be willing to do everything Christ would do for the church, I need to be do willing to do for Rachel... And you know what? The immediate thing comes to my mind. You saw it this morning. It pops in there. i got to say it. There was an occasion he put a towel around his waist, bent down, and began to wash his disciples' feet. And it hasn't always been easy for me to help her wash the dishes. When Christ is first, everything about our life will be better for everyone in our life. This is in no way diminishing us and how we treat other people. When Christ is first and we're willing to count anything lost and put Christ first, we'll be the best we can be for everybody in our life. And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, because it's not about anything we can do, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Righteousness that comes through God's will and not my own will. You see, I'm pretty good at coming up with lists of things Greg Branch thinks is good and, well, we can follow this, but what about God's? That's what Paul's trying to get the church in Philippi and us and everyone to understand, that righteousness has to come from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the power of the resurrection of Christ, the fellowship of His sufferings, 
We talked about that in the sufferings this morning. And I even alluded to, I, don't, I can't explain everything we go through in life. But this much I'm confident. If God would let the son that he loves, his only begotten son, go through what he went through, then I can't question whether or not God loves me. You can't question whether or not God loves you. We may not understand it. We may have trouble with it. But we know he loves us. And it may be that we're having fellowship in his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He says I want to even conform to the death of Christ. So that any way I can. I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. How do we conform to the death of Christ? We're going to look at Romans 6. I referenced it this morning, so I decided I'm going to hit this quick this afternoon. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So many things about, said about the book of Romans and grace of God and, and this and that and the other. But the question comes is, okay, if we're saved by grace, then do we continue in sin? Because if we do, then because that's helping grace abound. Certainly not. King James says, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How do you keep living in something you died to? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we talked about the word, the same Greek word, means to dip or immerse or to plunge. We were immersed, we were dipped, we were plunged into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead to walk in the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we obey the gospel, it's a change. It's a new life. And what is he going to say? For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. How do we conform and attain to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's being conformed to his death. How do we do that? Baptism. Come in obedience to the gospel as we talked about this morning. And then literally be willing to let God's will overwhelm our own self-will. That when our self-will contradicts whatever is God's revealed, we're going to follow God's will. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. He died. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. The fact is, we're going to be a slave to something. Somebody says, no, I'm my own guy. I'm my own woman. No, you're not. We're slave to something. We're either going to commit ourselves to be a servant and a slave of God, or it's going to come to sin. That's just the way it works. We'd love to think that we could just be this little island unto ourselves, but the very fact that you're in here with other people tells me you can't do that. We can't do that. We're going to be subject to something. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. We dread, we look, in many cases, we look at the concept of death and we just, the separation is overwhelming. It's too hard to comprehend in many ways. For this life and the one after. But he says, once Christ died, and he rose, death, the dominion of death is gone. 
It's no longer in the. It's it's no longer a factor. It's no longer an influence. I don't know about you, but just thinking and closing my eyes and thinking we would not even have to deal with that ever again, it brings calm. It brings peace. That's the promise through Christ. To be conformed to Him, to be born again and realize we don't have to worry about it, and that we can skip to a point that it's no longer an issue. As one man said before he died, Uncle James Orton, some of you know him, Death is not relevant. It doesn't have to be through Jesus Christ. Not that I've already attained back in Philippians. Philippians 3.12, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may hold, lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He says, I've been conformed to the death so that I can look forward to attaining to resurrection. He says, and I, not, not that I'm there yet. Not that I'm already perfected. Now, that word perfected means to, make, to be made complete. But he says, I'm going to press on. And as we get further and further towards verse, chapter 4 and verse 1, stand fast, therefore. I want us to understand this is the whole concept. That you press on through everything. No matter what it is, that you may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of you. It's no accident you're here today. It's no accident when people become children of God. God has been after you. He has desired you since the foundation of this world. Now there, this begins to, to I, I can't even hardly comprehend God's omniscience. His omnipotence, his ability to know everything, to see, as Joe Heisel says in his sermon, this is time and time, and he sees it all. He's been after you all along. He says, now lay hold of that of which Christ Jesus has laid hold of you, of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says it again. Why is he draw? And again, this is, I know this is Paul's writing, but he's inspired of the Holy Spirit. Why is he repeating this concept? I'm not there yet, but I'm pressing. Any chance? Because that's really where every human gets. Even the Apostle Paul was there. Do you ever feel that way? I feel like I got so far to go. I'm not there yet, but I'm going to keep pressing. That's the message. One thing I'll do when, I, when I'm going to press forward, he says, one thing I'll do is I'm going to forget those things that are behind. Sometimes we can have so much heavy baggage of guilt and remorse behind us that it prevents us from ever letting loose and taking off going forward. Paul says, I'm going to let loose of it. Now look, he told us a lot of things in this reading that we study today that he could brag about. If people wanted to brag about the flesh, there's other writings when he says he's the chief of sinners. And he starts to list that list. And it's a pretty bad one. He says, I, you put these things behind you, behind you. And you press, you reach forward to those things which are ahead. But you notice he didn't say, 
I forget those things that are sinful and leave them behind me. He just says, forgetting those things which are behind me. You know, there's times that we have to forget all of our victories that are behind us. If you sit and as they said when I was growing up, rest on your laurels. Say, you know, look at all I've accomplished. I think I'll just build barns for myself, throw it all into storage and rest and take ease. Well, that's a problem too. For anybody that will go through this life successful, we're going to put what was, what's behind us is behind us. We got new goals. We have new challenges. And we're not just going to stop because there's a transition point. He says, I'm going to reach forward to the things that are ahead. What does life have from here on out? I don't know, but I'm going to reach for it. And I'm going to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Whatever I do, as I reach forward, it's going to have to do with the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He says, if you're mature in Christ, this is the way you need to look at life. But, he says, if there's any point that you think otherwise... God will reveal it unto you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. You know what I get? And if you notice, this is italicized. This is not the Bible part. I don't have too many notes in these. But this is my ideas. These brethren seem to have issues they disagreed about. Whether it was... This idea that he says, if in anything you think otherwise had to do with what Paul's writing to them or what they were dealing with in the relationships to each other, they would have disagreement. He says, of these issues you disagree about, he says, God is going to reveal it. Now, it's my opinion, the New Testament wasn't done yet. And so scripture was still being revealed. And so when he says, God will reveal even this to you, he's saying the Bible's not done yet. But I want you to know, I think this concept applies to us today. Frankie and I are going to be 52 this year. I remember the first preacher I remember staying with us that I thought, I just want to study with preachers was Don McCord. And I could, he, he had my bedroom and I'd ride with him in cars to different places, telling him, showing him how to get to widows' houses and going to church and doing all this. And I thought, you know, I just want to know. Forty years later, sometimes I, I feel like I still don't know. There's so much that sometimes we think otherwise. We still got to study and get together. Now, if that happens with somebody that's raised in a Christian family and for 40 years has been trying to understand this, imagine what it's like for a new convert. Literally a babe in Christ. There's a lot of things we think otherwise about. So what do you do when you get to those situations that you don't have this unity and this commonality? God's going to reveal it. Sometimes, and for us today, that means we're going to study and we'll gradually come there. Nevertheless, here's what you do. To the degree that we've already attained... Let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. We unify around what we can agree on. And if there's things at which we find ourselves being divided, I've never found a situation like that yet 
that we couldn't find a place of consensus that brethren could stay together in harmony. Now, it will require that one or both are willing to concede something, but it can never be truth. And I want to tell you, without going into a whole lot of time on this, I think if you would follow this down to any doctrine that divides the collective worship of any assembly of people to this principle, you could unite the whole religious world that believes in Christ. And we would all worship the same way. If we would agree upon, well, what does it say? Is there something we can unite around? Well, yeah, it says that, but, right? This rule would work today. And this is a path forward through any situation. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. So this is the pattern, this is the example you've seen, and I want you to note those people that also live this same way, that also conduct themselves in this same demeanor. He says, I want you to look at those people. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, I need you to seek out and identify people that follow the pattern we're teaching. Because there are people that you would otherwise follow, and I've warned you about them often. And I'm telling you now, even to the point of tears, they're just enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. How do we know the difference in those who are putting God first versus these, this other character of people? What's the influence? What's it feeding? Think about the things that can divide us spiritually. Think about the things that can divide us congregationally. Is there a path that clearly walks as we have the Bible for an example? And is there a path that clearly is just feeding the fleshly, earthly man? Generally speaking, there's always a clear difference. And I'm not going to sit up here and start giving you examples. You can think of it yourself. What are we feeding? Are we feeding the Spirit? Are we feeding our love and desire for the Word? Or are we feeding our fleshly desire for something different? For our citizenship is in heaven. From whence we so eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The same power that Christ has to bring everything into subjection he said is going to be used that same power. He says he's going to do that. He's going to transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Now some of you here, I know you love creation. You love the mountains. You love the oceans. You, love, you just love everything God's made. The best things in this world are the things that you appreciate that God created that man hadn't messed up yet. That same God and creator, that same Lord Jesus has plans for your body. It's going to be conformed to his glorious body. When we follow the pattern he's talked about putting forth, therefore, back where we started, in light of this message, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown. I mean, these people are precious to him. He says, you are my joy. You're my crown. 
So stand fast in the Lord, my beloved. This is how you do it. What did he tell us? He says, you beware dogs. Watch out for people that are dangerous. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and not in the law of Moses. He says, rejoice in the knowledge of Jesus. Don't be content in your knowledge base. I know it's hard sometimes for us to push, to learn, and to study, and to keep that motivation. But don't be content in it. He says, rejoice in the knowledge you have of Jesus. Don't ever stop learning. Embrace righteousness that's through faith in Jesus. Not self-righteousness. Not righteousness of merit. Righteousness that is through faith in Jesus. That's going to come through the word. Embrace his power and be conformed to Jesus. Embrace the resurrection by reaching forward. By understanding that you can be born again and start over. And embrace truth and continue learning. And embrace faithful examples. And avoid enemies. There are people you have in your life that you know are good, faithful examples. He says embrace those. And there are others that we tend to like to hang out with that we know are kind of enemies of the message. But we sure do. They're, they're good people in a lot of ways. But they are enemies of what the church stands for. He says embrace the faithful examples. And embrace your heavenly citizenship. See, what gets me to where I get kind of caught up in all this that's besides Christianity? What, what is it that makes me get to where I lose sight of this? It's when I start to thinking too much about here. It's when I get to thinking too much about things of the flesh. When I think about my citizenship in heaven, everything gets pretty crystal clear. A lot of questionable things are no longer questionable. And this much is for sure. If you're not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then it's hard to think about embracing the citizenship. Now, in our country right now, there's a lot of talk about citizenship and how you get it and why you... God's made it simple. Everybody can become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it amazing? I said plenty about baptism and water this morning, so I, I'm, I'm glad you get it. Isn't it amazing that God chose the one thing that any place on earth that will support life has it? When he was looking for something to ask his people to surrender to. He said be baptized in water. Somebody asked me one time. Well what if it's a place that doesn't have water? I said show me life. <laughs> Water's there. It's cheap. It's free. Our citizenship is so easy to grasp. Almost so easy. It's almost like naming the letter. Leper. People will go in a way in a rage because you wanted them to be baptized when they would have done something great. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, 
please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.